Yeah, I there's a chance we saw Shoot 'em Up twice in theaters. I think we saw it on our own, and my dad and I like loved it so much that we're like, we got to take the neighbors to see this. Because <laughs> we like told them about it. Call your neighbors. And we're like, you guys, you guys should just come. We should just go see it again. And I think we went and saw it again. And I remembered, I remembered loving it, but I also remembered thinking the second time I saw it that the Motley Crue needle drops didn't hit as strong as the that first time we saw it. Wow. Call your sons, call your daughters, call your friends, call your neighbors. Mark Burley has a perfect game going to the ninth. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Come to the gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me, as always, are... Andrew Stasulis And... Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week, and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that theme. And we come on here and talk it out. It's episode 110, and it was my topic this week, which was funny pages. In other words, I asked the boys to bring me films adapted from, based on, or in the world of comic strips, comic books, etc. And, you know, part of me, I think, was nervous about what was going to happen, because I don't necessarily, uh, you know, love comic book movies or anything, superheroes or otherwise. You know, I think I think I have a normal engagement with them, which is not really, you know, someone who's uh, spent a lot of time in reality with comic books. You know, I'm a movie guy through and through. So uh, I didn't know what to expect, you know, and I got to say, you hit me both in a sweet spot, you know? I may not love superhero movies, but I love junk. Um, and I think both of these movies in their own way are a lot of a lot of fun junk cinema. Uh, anyway, let's get started. Ryan, you had the earlier of the two films. Why don't you tell us all about it? I was really hoping to find a non-superhero Funny Pages movie that would scratch the itch I was looking for for the episode. And there were definitely some that came up. And I was joking with Andy that I was thinking about Josie and the Pussycats because I knew that that had sort of been reclaimed and people love it. But then I also kind of spent some time reading about it and just seeing the fervor at which, like, the current generation of people like love Josie and the Pussycats. I got like turned off by how much people love it. You know, I'm like, I don't want to be just playing the the same old, you know, playing it right in their hand, you know. And then I went back to um, a film I had I had glanced at when I was sifting and searching. And 
it was one that uh, had a hook that I simply couldn't resist and I had to experience firsthand, and that was a Mexican Lucha Libre Batwoman film from 1968. So... I thought, ah, what the hell, let's dive in, let's take a look, and um, that's what I brought. It is called Batwoman, the film is from 1968, it is directed by the Cuban-Mexican filmmaker Rene Cardona, and I've actually seen one of his films before. He has an insane Santa Claus movie that I would highly recommend. Um, it's pretty, you know, psychotronic. It's something to kind of like ambiently have on. I made my family watch it, I think last Christmas or maybe the Christmas before, like while we were doing other stuff. It's like a great thing to have on the TV. It's about a satanic demon man who's like in Santa Claus land, I, the North Pole, presumably. Yeah, um, but the imagery is deranged. It's a film that I can very vividly picture in my mind's eye, uh, even if I couldn't tell you really anything else about it. But Rene Cardona was a genre filmmaker through and through, and in his time span of making films from 1937 to 1986, he made over 100 films. <laughs> and they all sort of blend together, is my understanding. They all kind of like borrow elements from each other, and they all kind of have a genre. So, I mean, well, he made some. He made some dra dramatic films too, with some like serious golden age Mexican performers. He he's sort of all over the place, but it seems like his niche, where he really found his home, was in genre stuff, comic stuff, horror, thrillers, you name it. And I think the reason I was really drawn to Batwoman 1968 was because I like really cheap comic adaptations, really cheap comic adaptations. I'm not a big comic book movie guy, but I am interested in the way that something can be cross-culturally so uh, significant, you know, like the way that comics can capture people in different countries' attention, and then like a kind of a low budget effort to recapture that kind of, you know, excitement for a local audience. And that's sort of what this film is trying to be. It's really emulating the Batman TV show from the 60s with Adam West. It definitely feels like of a piece with that and has a very similar visual style to it. And the film itself, right, I mean, it sort of sounds like you're describing a Batman TV episode. You know, there's a uh, mad doctor who has an assistant named Igor. He's stealing the spinal fluid from athletic wrestlers that he is then going to implant into fish to create a new race of like amphibious human reptile men. Uh, then with the kind of overarching goal to use all of these reptile men to take over all the oceans uh, of the world. And then by controlling the sea, he controls the world. And the FBI sends a special agent out to Acapulco, where this is happening, and that special agent recommends Batwoman sort of handle the job here. And, I mean, you know, what else is there really to say about the plot? That's, that's basically what it is. And primarily, too, this film is also kind of just an advertisement for spending your 
vacation in Acapulco. It's like a seems to be like a very pleasant place to sit on the beach, listen to some tunes, take Not a dip. Not anymore, but it was then. <laughs> it certainly was then. So that's like half of this film feels like an advertisement to go hang out on the beach and spend a lot of money. As I said, there's a Lucha Libre element, which is like very fun. So Batwoman herself, her name is Gloria. She is very affluent, like Bruce Wayne. Um, and she's very athletic, good at sports. She's good at shooting. She apparently does like Wild West shows, seemingly in a brief glimpse we get to see. But she is also a wrestler. And we get a lot of scenes of her doing Lucha Libre with some like other Lucha Libre, uh, uh, you wouldn't say performers, would you? Sure, you could. Just with other, other wrestlers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's got that ambient 1960s comic book vibe to it. And it's a real low-rent production. You got guys in, like, plastic fish suits. There's tons of time filled with just gratuitous underwater photography that was kind of funnily reminiscent of the silent world that we just recently watched. I kind of felt like I was back in Jacques Cousteau land, especially when Batwoman was riding around on the exact same underwater scooter. Um, and yeah, I mean, is it a great film? No. But honestly, I think it is as good as the other film that we have uh, in the pairing today, even though it costs, you know, much more money. Um, I think these films are an interesting double feature in that sense, because really, I don't think it costs too much to have a good time in comic land, despite what uh, contemporary cinema <laughs> seems to think these films need to look like, you know? Um, so yeah, that, that's Batwoman from 1968. Thank you very much. Andy, why don't you tell us about the colorful picture you brought? Well, I, uh, you know, didn't have too much trouble uh, picking my film. I had one other thing that I was grappling with, but uh, it seems to be totally out of uh, out of print. Can't seem to find it anywhere. That was going to be the uh, the Punisher film from 1989, starring Dolph Lundgren. Which, if anybody knows out there how to find it, I definitely want to revisit that. So. Hook a brother up. But um, other than that, my choice was was pretty clear. Um, this is a childhood favorite of mine, a movie that absolutely blew my, like, 10-year-old brain when I saw it as a wee lad. It was just so vibrant, so wacky, so goofy, and in your own words, Marsh, so colorful, it just hit all the buttons, and that, of course, uh, is 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 also taking nothing away from the music, which is, I think, uh, some of the greatest movie music I've ever heard. That movie would be Flash Gordon from 1980, directed by Mike Hodges. Uh, this is a Dino De Laurentiis production. Dino, apparently for many years, had been trying to get a, a version of this off the ground. He, in his, in his own words, was a, a big, big fan as a child of the original Flash Gordon comic strip by Alex Raymond. And he had sort of been kicking it around for a long time and finally was able to get a production going. There's a sort of interesting pre-production element which we'll get into, but for those who haven't seen the film or don't know 
who Flash Gordon is. Um, he is, in this movie, quarterback of the New York Jets and the universe's only hope to stand up against Ming the Merciless, this sort of evil emperor of of the galaxies who has chosen the Earth as his latest target for destruction. He, in his boredom, likes to select a random planet somewhere out there in the stars to then unleash uh, all kinds of, of horrible storms with his big weather machine or some shit like that. And uh, the Earth is under attack. But no one seems to think that. I guess people feel like climate change is just kind of getting wild. However, <laughs> Hans Zarkov, disgraced NASA scientist played by the great Topol from Fiddler on the Roof fame, uh, he seems to know what's going on, that there is this alien invasion taking place, attacking Earth, but, but we just can't see it. So he, through a set of strange circumstances, manages to kidnap... Flash Gordon and Dale Arden, who's just a sort of pretty lady on the plane with Flash. And there's this uh, this plane crash, and they they just so happen to crash at, at Hans Zarkov's Hans Zarkov's you know home laboratory where he's built his own rocket to lead the counterattack, as he says, against this alien force uh, laying Earth under siege. They take off in this homemade rocket and land on the planet Mongo, the home of Ming the Merciless. And from there, yeah, it is uh, a, a grand, glorious, campy space opera in which Flash Gordon, Dale Arden, and Zarkov have to lead a rebellion against Ming the Merciless, played here by Max von Sydow. And... Uh, Man, along the way, there's just a lot of laughs, a lot of goofy fun. It's got a really, really awesome cast who who are totally game for what's happening. And, of course, more people probably know it for its theme song. The, the rock music of the film was all composed by Queen. Um, and, yeah, you know, it is just... Such a mind, uh, mind-blowing film, particularly for its design. Its production design is some of the most stunning, weird, wacky shit you'll see in anything of this ilk. That production design, which I'm sure we're going to uh, gush over, is by the great Danilo Donati. Yeah, uh, De Laurentiis, um, like I said, he was trying for many years to get this production put together. And um, apparently, uh, against his best intentions, this movie was was made the way it is by Mike Hodges. Apparently, like Dino was just on set constantly, like trying to to steer this towards his vision, which was way less campy. was was supposed to be a lot more earnest for Dino. He wanted this to be like a serious sci-fi epic. And I'm sure glad that Mike Hodges and others were able to sort of like push him back and hold control of this film to make it the way that they did. It is just, to me, such great, dumb fun. Uh, I never get sick of this movie. I've seen it probably 20 times and I have an absolute blast. And it made my decision even that much more easy when I 
discovered that neither of you had ever seen this movie and that totally uh totally was like man all right fine we got to do it because you both had to see this movie so yeah i love it i'm like gushing over it i i I sometimes struggle to talk about the movies that i love and and this is certainly one of those so i i hope we're going to be able to have a good conversation about it because man this is to me a classic and um just an absolute joy to revisit so that was my pick flash gordon from 1980 thank you very much andy yeah i think you know ryan i think pointed of course to the most obvious sort of uh, disconnect between these films which is their scale you know the flash the flash sorry i'm gonna probably do that more than (laughs) once uh flash gordon uh is a big budget movie and it and it looks great, right? And and obviously Batwoman is uh, not exactly like uh, entirely broke. You know, there's some capable craftsmanship within the low budget, but it is such a stark contrast. And yet, both films are colorful. Both films are silly. They're not taking themselves very seriously. But I think what startled me most, maybe not startled, but I guess appreciated, is that both of these films are sexy. And it's an amazing thing to think about in in the sexless age of of you know today's comic movies and today's Hollywood. Uh, these are horny films and that's just a whole extra layer and element to them that I appreciated. So I you know I like that both of the films aren't exactly, you know, they're not trying to do anything beyond their sort of means. And again, it's like the Mike Hodges influence on Flash Gordon being like, no, this is a joke. Like, Dino, this is, I'm not going to take this seriously. I'm a grown man or whatever, you know? Uh, and with, <laughs> like, obviously, and, and with Batwoman, like, there, it's just, you know, it's it's straight ahead. And, and I think, it, you know, Cardona is playing things for laughs. He's not a fucking complete idiot, you know? Um But yeah, I think both of them are very like straightforward in their approaches with some humor mixed in, you know? Yeah, it feels like they're just having fun when they're making them. I feel like most of the comic book movies I've bothered to kind of see after Spider-Man 2 came out, you know? Like, I I guess when I'm thinking about my own comic journey, right, you know, I when I was in middle school, I really loved all that stuff. I read some Spider-Man comics and... I enjoyed the Sam Raimi movies a lot. And when The Dark Knight came out, I thought it was really cool. Like, I liked it at that age, you know? But I remember thinking, like, wow, this is so different. This is so serious. And then I just got so exhausted with that, even with the Joss Whedon ones, where it doesn't even seem like they're having fun. You know, it seems like they're trying to make people take this shit seriously. And I like that both of these movies respect the material enough to not demand that the audiences take it seriously because i think it defeats the whole purpose of why you would even read a comic you can still like get things of course from comics that can move you and make meaning for you but the the films today that i've seen always feel like they're trying to prove a point to try and make you take them seriously and neither of these films are doing that they're they just want you to sort of take them on their own terms and because of that i found them both to be like yes pleasant ambient experiences in that regard yeah uh and it's funny that that you know we were starting on this because as i said in my intro like uh 
uh, Dino was very, very, very upset when he felt this was being played that way when he was visiting the set and and sort of like seeing the production unfold and there's a lot of stories i i heard in interviews where people were like yeah he was a monster on set because he kept saying like no no this is all wrong you know like it needs to be it needs to be grand it needs to be serious like i mean he thought he was making like a kurosawa film set in space you know he thought he was doing like seven samurai shit and mike hodges like apparently at one point in a very rare instance of of being able to pull the shit off barred De Laurentiis from the set the producer of the film was kept off yeah, set. just like the fish that saved Pittsburgh last week yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah for for probably slightly different reasons but you know yes runaway producers you know but yeah um and and that's you know very interesting too when you consider as I I sort of alluded to this this had a long development cycle with several different names attached to direct and Laurentis had issues and falling outs of various kinds trying to to manage the content and I don't know if either of you discovered this but but the you know the first director who actually was working on Flash Gordon like actually working during pre-production was Nicholas Rogue and uh, apparently that falling out was because Rogue was, you know, doing Rogue shit. You know, he was yeah. going Rogue. Rogue jamming. Yeah, he was going Rogue. <laughs> and and uh, I saw an interview with uh, De Laurentiis, one of his daughters, and she was just saying, like, it was too intellectual, you know? Hell yeah. So, like, Laurentiis was struggling to sort of find this this middle ground because he felt Rogue was was trying to 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 be too too intellectual, too smart about it, and he had issues once he brought Mike Hodges on board because he felt he was taking it, you know, playing it all for laughs, and and he struggled with that. But there were other directors who were in the mix. Fellini was one of the first choices for De Laurentiis. Uh, and there's an actual homage to that in the film. I don't know if either of you caught it, but oh yeah, yeah. Ming's Ming's daughter Aura, the very you know, very sexed up daughter of Ming. She has a little pet, this you know, little person played by Deep Roy, and they only say his name once, but she says "Come, Fellini." So of course, you know, as a sick you know De Laurentiis joke, this. This very small man is is yeah, uh, this little clown guy. Yeah, this yeah. little clown guy is named <laughs> Fellini, but also uh, Lucas George Lucas pitched, I guess, like his oppor- You know, he he threw his hat in the ring at one point, and Laurentis was like, "Get the fuck out of here, you 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 hack!" And that led Lucas to then go make Star Wars. Like he wanted to do the Flash Gordon adaptation because, you know. I had known that this came from a comic strip. I'd known that the original source material, Flash Gordon, goes all the way back to the 1930s. But what I didn't realize was how popular that comic strip was throughout the 30s and the serials. and 40s. And then, yes, the serial films. There was a TV show made in the 50s as well. And so many of the people involved in this had memories of reading it as a child, of loving it. You know, Flash Gordon was one of the first big, quote, superheroes in American comic books, in popular comic books. You know, one of the first big superstars like that. But yeah, um, also Leone, that was another one I came across. Sergio Leone was 
was approached by De Laurentiis, but Leone apparently backed off because he felt that it wasn't. He thought it was about revolution, you know. Fellini yeah. thought it was about sex, yeah. and uh, you can. I, I like that. I can imagine what everyone's like version of it would be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, Mike Hodges got on board, and he was like, "Nah, everyone's everyone's got the wrong idea. This needs to be like." Batman, the TV show. And and that is really what makes this film such. Didn't the Batman guy co-write it? Wasn't his, he involved? Because I think that's another funny connection is like with the influence of the 60s Batman yes. on Batwoman, they literally got the 60s Batman guy to like do a pass of Flash Gordon. Like the guy who wrote the TV show or the yeah. guy who wrote yeah. like the comics? Oh, okay. The TV yeah. show. Lorenzo Simple Jr. is the guy that basically like developed the Batman TV show, wrote the pilot, mm. wrote a few of the, came the first episodes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So those two minds got together. That up, but. Yeah. So those two minds got together on this and, and they, they turned it into this like high camp classic that, Interesting. It, that it is. Wow. Yeah. I like the Fellini joke that, cause when I first saw it, my reaction was like, isn't that the Oompa Loompa from the Willy Wonka remake with Johnny Depp? And it is. Uh, oh. I know Deep Roy's in like a lot of other stuff, but it was funny that that was like my initial reaction because you know he was like painted. He he was like a little orange or red in his in his goofy colorful costume. But I like yeah. the idea of Fellini as an Oompa Loompa. You know, I think that fits fits oh, the yeah. actor very well. <laughs> yeah. It, so like this is all very interesting to me, I guess, from like a historical perspective because. You know, I wasn't there when Star Wars came out, right? But, like, Robin Wood writes about it, being like, you know, people are now demanding that we take this stuff seriously. What's going on? Or whatever. <laughs> because, like, Star Wars was so profitable. And, of course, Star Wars being just a straight rip-off <laughs> rip of Flash Gordon, admittedly so, as we all know, with Kurosawa thrown in. Um, it's just so funny that, in a sense, uh, Flash Gordon is like the your text of American fantasy adventure for like a hundred years. And Buck, of course, Buck Rogers. But it all goes back to these like 30s fantasy adventures that we are just perpetually recreating into oblivion, you mm -hmm. know, that we're still yeah. recreating to this day. But it wasn't until Star Wars and that level of profitability that all of a sudden it's like, no, you have to take you have to take this seriously now, and that's of course Wood's point. It's like, do we? You know, maybe not. You know, <laughs> yeah. And Lucas himself like betrayed his initial his initial vision because like Star Star Wars, at least the first one to me, like was goofy, and and they progressively got yes more serious when I think they got all that stature when they were suddenly being praised as these, you know, great works of like political philosophy or some shit like that. And so like when he came back and did like the prequels, then he was like, yeah, these movies are about ethics. It's like, nah, it shouldn't be about ethics. It should be about ray guns and weird costumes and goofy creatures. Like that's, that's all it should be. And again, a hero that is like a himbo, like a hero that is, totally clueless as to like his his power you know it's a guy that really should stumble into his heroism more than you know realize he's the second coming of christ or some shit like that 
Yeah, because even calling Flash Gordon a superhero, like, I can't even do it. He's just a guy that's not wearing pants, you know? Like, <laughs> dude, <laughs> in the originals, he's like a polo player, but here yeah. as, like, the quarterback. I mean, it's so funny. And it's a huge part of the original. You know, I've seen some of the serials and, like... Buster Crab was like an Olympic swimmer and he's out there like using wrestling techniques like in fucking Batwoman in the 30 serials. He's like doing Greco-Roman shit grapples, you know? <laughs> yeah. So even like the history of wrestling is wrapped up in all of this. God. Because what happens next for Flash Gordon? I don't know anything about this guy. This was my introduction to the world of Flash Gordon. So after this happens... Does this just this just keep happening to him? Because he never gets superpowers. I mean, neither does Batman. And Batman slash Batwoman keeps fighting yeah. just because of their skills. But I mean, yeah, what happens normally in the world of Flash Gordon after this kind of type of incident? Is he recruited by different like interplanetary committees to kind of fight evil in different galaxies? Yeah. Is it primarily set on Earth? Like what kind of... What does he do? Well, from my understanding of the comics, they're all set for the most part on Mongo yeah. and the surrounding like worlds that are introduced okay. in this film. And so, you know, after Ming is deposed, of course, in the comics, he's not totally killed. Uh, yeah. You know, he's still around uh, making attempts at reclaiming the throne. And there's various intrigues. You know, that take place on the other planets with the other princes and, 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 you know. Does he ever start like a football team on any of these planets? Does he like introduce American culture? To these people, that, that well, I again, don't in the know. original comics, he's a polo player, yeah. so he would have started right, polo okay. yeah. teams. Well, but, but then, yeah, yeah. I feel like his re his like actual superpower in the original serial is that he can just like drive any machine. Yeah. You know, because it's like one of those one of those things where it's like, oh, here's a spaceship, and he's just like perfectly taking off, or like, oh, here's another vehicle, like all these space vehicles he's never driven. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, Hillary kept asking me, my girlfriend, when we were watching it, because she'd never seen it before she was like so his superpower is football like <laughs> cause, cause yes i was like yeah basically i feel like his superpower is optimism i feel like in the face of danger throughout this film that's what we're seeing even he's he's they're about to execute him they're putting the hood over his head they got him chained down they're gonna throw all this gas yeah. like it's space gas that he knows that a human being can't can't stomach you know and even then he's kind of like i'll, I'll get through this don't yeah, worry. Flash, Flash has what former White Sox broadcaster Hawk Harrelson would call the will to win. Yeah. And that is one of those <laughs> intangible skills. You can't teach it. You can't learn it. It's in you or it yeah. isn't. He's also got what Hawk would say, uh, the good face. He does have the good face. And in fact, that's, that's how Sam Jones was basically discovered. He was... Uh, he was growing up, he was like a Marine at some point. He did play football. He tried to make it in the pros, washed out, and then was just this handsome fucking himbo in California. And he was a playgirl model. Yes. And he had mm. done like full frontal nude, like centerfolds for, for playgirl. And Laurentis was, you know, casting a wide net. And apparently... This was one of the most sought-after roles when it got out that Laurentis was going to spend big bucks on this Flash Gordon adaptation. And there were a lot of people vying 
for the role, including Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell had had tried to get the role. There were other actors who auditioned, but Laurentis, through a long courting process, I discovered, just sort of started to spend time. They would fly Sam Jones out, and he just liked his look, his vibe, and he was an matched un- his memory of the comic strip thirty years ago. Yeah, you know? ba- basically, you know, in his fantasies, <laughs> yeah. he saw Sam Jones, and and was like, "That's it, you're the guy." But Sam Jones was, of all the people involved, certainly all like the major players in this, the least like you know, experienced actor. I mean, he was basically an unknown when he took on this role. Mm. And, you know, to a certain extent, I think that that, that, that shows in his character because he's with all these fucking Shakespearean British actors. And, and here's just this, this dumb American jock that like doesn't realize what he's gotten himself into a Dino De Laurentiis production, you know, and he has this. Yeah. Yeah. He feels very green. Yeah. This unbridled optimism. But again, you know, not to just spend too much time dishing on like the, the, the behind the scenes shit that also led to uh, a big, big blow up during production that Sam Jones was like, I'm going to be a star. And he started to just demand things on set. And the big blow up was he didn't get paid for like two weeks and just sort of like said, okay, Dino, if you don't pay me, I'm walking off the set. And he did. He walked off the set, shut down production for three days. And Laurentis was just like, you're done. You don't fuck with Dino De Laurentiis. And then they had a break and Dino De Laurentiis was like, don't come back. And then they just brought in some other actor to to dub his his voice lines. But yeah, yeah, dr- drama, yeah, behind the scenes. But but yeah, again, uh, that sort of like naivete, that sort of being in over your head, I think, kind of shows through his performance and his character. I feel like it should be a prerequisite for uh, contemporary superhero actors to have appeared in Playgirl before yes. they play superheroes. Oh, yeah. I think it should be a rule. Hell yeah. Yeah, well, that's a good way, I think, to segue into, uh, you know, our girl Gloria Moria Monti as Batwoman, who uh, she acts like she's been there before, you know. Uh, Unlike Flash Gordon, uh, she's a seasoned crime fighter and a seasoned sexy lady who, uh, you know, walks around uh, in a sort of like bat Batwoman bikini. A batkini. Uh, A batkini, (laughs) the whole film. She has a phenomenal entrance into this movie. Yes. So it's like Ethan Hunt, you know? She, yeah, because we've got... Because the way the movie starts is there's all these wrestlers that are just found floating in the waters of Acapulco, and they're like, oh, they're, they, we just keep finding all these dead wrestlers, and they've been having their uh, pineal glands removed with surgical precision. We don't know why anyone would be doing such a thing. We're so unfamiliar with this gland. And that's when the FBI gets brought in, because they're like, okay, Acapulco, local PD, like, you guys can't handle this. This is a problem. We've been seeing this happening in other places around the world. Hong Kong, Macau. And so, yeah, we've got like, we've got the FBI guy that's like, don't worry, I know this, I know this Batwoman, she can get the job done. And yeah, her entrance is so nice because it's just, from that intro, you got the FBI like talking her up. It's just cut and she's mid-flight in a parachute on her way down to the streets of Acapulco wearing her Batkini and she just like, takes off the, the the parachute and she hops in a car with some guys and it's like straight to business you know she's been here yeah. before she's got stuff to get done 
Dude, I love, too, those guys, like, having the conversation about her. Like, I wrote down one of the lines, you know, when the guy's just like, who the hell is this? And, like, one of these cops is just like, she is a wonderful and very special lady. Like, that's how they described her. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then they Mario. cut to, like, yeah, the, the, like, montage where she's, like, she's target shooting in a bat cowl. She's snorkeling. She's horseback riding. <laughs> like, we get all the greatest hits. Yeah, we're seeing all her skills. And I love that it's, like, again, it's, like, a, a Mexican idea of the United States where it's, like, and, yeah, she, like, quick draws on a Western street. Yeah. And then it's, like, later, like, she lives in the capital city. I'm, like, what is going on here? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously. Obviously, none of it makes any sense, but it but it's awesome. You know, she's this all American cowboy girl, yeah. basically. She's distinguished in all sports. And it's is like, also what she's also say. recently gotten into wrestling. Uh, she's very good, and that'll come in handy. You yeah. know, as we get in here. Yeah, I was really curious about her in the Wild West town doing the the shooting gallery because we do see her doing just regular target practice before that yeah then we cut to her in full cowgirl attire on a horse in the middle of a town and i was expecting then a cut to this being like a tombstone type t- town where she's a stunt woman and people are clapping but we're just left with it as that she's the only person in this dusty town. Well, she's a billionaire, so it's probably just like part of her compound, you know? Yeah, she's got true. like it's all on, these it's different on her like, land. Yeah. Yeah. Different areas of training for her, you know? Yeah. One of the things I found out, you know, about this film, and actually mostly, you know, this this restoration played last year at Music Box on a double bill of Lucha Libre films. And Kat Sachs wrote a nice thing in the Chicago Reader that has some, you know, sort of background on Cardona. But him and the screenwriter of of Batwoman, Alfredo Salazar, uh, they pioneered, like, women's wrestling pictures in Mexico. Hmm. So, like, that was sort of part of their brand, you know, in a sense. Like, they'd done a couple wrestling pictures in the past. And again, like you said... This is one of those guys that directed over a hundred movies. So he's out there hustling. He's out there finding like new gimmicks. And I was overjoyed with how much just like wrestling there is in the film because one of the main locations is like the wrestling dojo. And then, you know, there's also like the arena where there's like, you know, real matches going on, quote unquote. Uh, And I love how much time she's just like wrestling when really she should be investigating, yeah. you know? She's just, yeah, she's hitting the mats, dude. <laughs> I mean, and that's what's funny about this movie, because look, this thing, I mean, it 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 drags itself over the finish line at like an hour and 19 <laughs> minutes, I think is how long yeah. the movie was. And if you kind of cut that out, the movie's like 48 minutes long, you know? There's just a lot oh, yeah. of these these sort of, interludes of just yeah wrestling or some other woman wearing a bat costume like a batwoman costume wrestling i don't know if it's always her because she's totally doubled in the ring yeah Yeah, for sure it's because you know that it's funny that as she's going around as batwoman like actually like fighting crime she's doing it in the batkini the very revealing batkini but whenever she's wrestling she's wearing like a full sweat suit and i kind of felt like sweats yeah, bat sweats. Yeah, I kind of felt like it would be the the opposite, you know? Like, when you're actually fighting crime, you'd want to be a little bit more covered up. But when you're putting on a show in the ring, 
you'd wear the skimpy batkini, but again, but you know. Acapulco beach setting. So she's always got to be ready. I mean, at one point there's a car chase and she just like dips in to like a public pool and then is just at the beach with her her FBI boyfriends. Oh, yeah. And again, not to, you know, not to be like outdone by the the lavish costume and production design of Flash Gordon, which is really just such a, a feast for the eyes. But there I don't think is a single scene where she's wearing the same outfit twice. Aside from the Batkini, yeah. every time right. we cut to her, even things that seemingly are happening like 20, 30 minutes apart, she has got a new set of duds on and she is always to the nines. I mean, I was loving all the costume changes. Yeah, she's like a fashion icon. Yeah. She dresses way better than I've ever seen Bruce Wayne dress. She's got some, yeah, incredible colorful attire. I mean, I guess, you know, that's that's how we know she's really wealthy and a woman of culture. When she's down in Acapulco, you need a different outfit every day if you're going to make a statement out there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's got international lawmen hanging on her arm, you know? I mean, it's, like, amazing. And I think we should point out, uh, I guess, you know, for me, the elephant in the room so far is that we haven't brought up the Bond connection, you know? Both in uh, the feeling of these films, you know? Sort of just, like people wandering around to like funky music in a you know, exotic locale uh, to of course in flash Gordon, we have a bond himself. We certainly do. Mr. Timothy Dalton. See, we, I was joking with Andy. We got to catch them all. You know, yeah. we're yeah. very close now. We just haven't had Pierce and George on the show or Daniel, I guess, but we'll get there. We'll find yeah. a way to sneak them all in. We oh, will easily. Yeah. But good to see I Timothy. I, I like the presence of Timothy Dalton. Uh, it's been a little while since I've even seen him in anything. Oh, um, hell yeah. He looked very silly, silly in his, his, his green suit. Yeah. I really enjoy his performance in Flash Gordon. I think it might be my favorite performance. And especially, too, that the film doesn't account for the fact that he, at the beginning of the film, is like the worst guy in the world. And then at the end, it's like... And now this guy's in charge. And I'm like, Timothy Dalton? Like, what? (laughs) He's so awesome at being just like the the sleazy piece of shit. And of course, yes, he helps everybody out and fights with everyone. Just super funny that I'm like, that guy didn't change. That's Timothy (laughs) Dalton, you know? Like, I can see it in his mustache. Yeah, well, that might have been in the sequel, you know, that maybe Prince Baron isn't (laughs) as great as everyone thought he was. No doubt about Mm. that. But again, they, they... Laurentis dreamed of a trilogy, but once Sam Jones like left in that very dramatic Lost way, it killed it. Universal basically was just like, well, without Sam Jones, you don't got a trilogy, and they killed that. But you know, the funny thing too, bringing up like Dalton and his like presence, um, I saw an interview with Brian Blessed, who plays Voltan, the the Prince of the Hawkmen faction, who were again as a child like such a big part of my imagination. That's your guy. Oh yeah, Prince Prince Voltan, you know. And again, Brian <laughs> Brian Blessed was talking about just how fun he had, how much fun he had making this movie because he was like as a kid. They would play, you know, in like the, the the dilapidated English town that he came from. They would play Flash Gordon, you know, in an like alley it, next to the factory. Yeah, yeah, like in the commitments, you know, like those Irish kids throwing bricks and shit like that, Ryan. Like, but they would yeah. be playing Flash <laughs> Gordon. And he said as a kid, he always insisted on playing Prince Voltan. So it was like a dream 
when he got to actually play him. But Blessed was talking about on set how a lot of the actors, he's like, when they first showed up, and he's like, we're all sitting around in our costumes in, in some of the first scenes that we were doing, and everybody was clueless. And Blessed told stories about various actors being like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. Wearing some like, in the case of Max von Sydow, he said his costume was 60 fucking pounds or whatever. And he was just like, what are we doing? But he said, Timothy Dalton was like, I'm going to do this like Errol Flynn. And that was like his approach. Nailed and, it. and yeah, absolutely nails the like swashbuckling Lothario character. Again, I think that's what makes like the fun come through in so many of the characters and their performances. I think everybody in Batwoman was just having a lot of fun getting a chance to swim and hang out on the beach, <laughs> you know? And I was thinking about how... I, the, you bringing a Bond, Marsh, you know, when I was thinking about James Bond when we were doing The Silent World and doing the Abyss episode and talking about those bland underwater scenes, this these scenes in Batwoman look nicer than the Bond, like in Thunderball, you yeah. know? Like, this actually feels like they're around real fish instead of just in a bland tank. They're still kind of boring watching people fight underwater, but there's enough, like, actual, you know, fish floating in. There's lots of bright colors that make it very pleasing when we do have all these scenes at the beach and under the water in Batwoman. I mean, in general, I was actually really surprised how decent looking of a film it is it was shot by one of boone wells cinematographers yeah. the guy who shot the criminal life of archibaldo de la cruz and the brute which are oh. two like really nice looking movies yeah um so it is no surprise then there too that like a film that is just this efficient has that kind of like workman like quality where it's just gonna look pretty good even though it's cheap we're gonna like work through this but that yeah that 60s film stock does make Acapulco look nice and yeah. it is nice being underwater with them. There's a couple of those sequences where, yeah, they are like fighting in like literal schools of fish, like very small yeah. fish. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Those were beautiful. They were beautiful. You know what I was thinking of? I read that, uh, Jimenez worked for Eisenstein when he was doing K Viva Mexico. So I was just thinking that he's like going for some, just like dynamic movement school of fish shit. You know, I was mm. really just like shocked at how competent and, and good those underwater scenes were, you know, I mean, this yeah. film's got a lot of problems pacing and otherwise, but like <laughs> that was not a problem, you know, right. other than, yeah, they milked it to a certain extent, but you do have a Pisces fish monster. Um, but like, <laughs> it looks good. It looks good. You know, I mean, I think too, like I read on, on letterboxd, uh, John Lickman said that this film, because of the restoration, uh, screened at the museum of moving image. And one month later debuted as an MST three K Right. So like, wow. I think that, you know, is, is a great sort of like didactic understanding of this film that it can be screened, yeah. you know, at Momi as like, look at this historic sort of like weird Lucha Libre Batman crossover, like very unique object. And then also, yeah, you get the, the laughers out, you yeah. know, ha 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 or whatever. This movie's a piece of shit. But like. It's really not that much of a piece of shit. You know, I've seen worse. I, I mean, I definitely think, too, though, with MST3K, like, there, there are clearly films that they bring on that are just like, this is 
objectively like a horrible movie but i think they yeah, do some also are out of love yeah the, it's like a loving kind of like they, they also want to use it to to elevate a movie you know like uh what is it santa claus versus the martians or whatever right right like, something like that and i think you know? they did a pretty notable episode on Rene cardona's santa claus the they one I, w- I was referencing you yeah. know and you know, I generally think MST3K is like fine. Like I, I liked it when I was growing up, but yeah, a lot of times too, I would get really distracted because I would think that you know some of these movies actually seem decent, and I would love yeah. for these guys to just like quit their gabbing. Yeah, you know? shut up for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you should be able to turn them off if you like get really into it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Which I guess is sort of the goal of riff tracks when yeah. they kind of like added that, like, oh, you could play this on top of the movie and then so you could toggle it. But this is definitely one of those ones. This is one where if I had started with them, I would have wanted them to go away because I would have gotten into it because I did get into it. I mean, it does evoke the same feeling as a Bond film from the 60s, I think. It is like boring in that way, which I find pleasant. Yeah. You know, nice travelogue of Acapulco. Yeah. Like, yeah. And again, because neither of these films are demanding that you take them very seriously or are really questioning larger ideas like ethics and, you know, them trying to have capital T themes, there is just this comfort knowing that they are these kind of just blandly plotted adventures and you can just enjoy the colors and the costumes and the charisma and the attitudes of everyone and just the small details because Batwoman is appealing because of all those small details. You've got wrestling, you've got actual colorful, nice underwater photography. You have good costumes even in scenes where they're not dressed as superheroes, you know? There's so much to just enjoy. It's also Frankenstein. And it's also Frankenstein, yes. <laughs> yes, a nice touch. Yeah, because the, the mad scientist, his, yeah, his assistant is Igor, and they're going through the whole thing, you know? It's like this nice mix and matching. Again, like I said, you make 100 films, they're all going to become one film eventually you're just going to start like stealing bits from everything you've worked with i mean i don't know how many frankensteins cardona made but i'm sure he made more than one and you count this one in it <laughs> yeah. dude the fish the fishman experiment had yeah, yeah. me dying the toy this is the real barbie shit dude yeah. oh my god dude <laughs> i was losing it because i was like oh they, they got a plan here i mean first the the wrestler shit as you described where it's like okay they're they're extracting you know, from the, what is it, the pineal, the pineal. gland? Which, yeah. by the way, sorry, I don't mean to keep interjecting, but, like, this movie is now in the pineal gland canon. Oh, yeah. Which I can only think of uh, from beyond as, like, the great pineal gland film. Oh, that's uh, right. That is the gland that they're dealing with in that movie. Yeah, yeah okay. And uh, the Illuminatus. The pineal yes. gland is very big in yeah. the Illuminatus. Oh. <laughs> hmm. Wow. Anyway, Do we sorry. know now what the pineal gland really does? Because they make a whole point about like not knowing what it does. I mean, I I doubt it, but I'm not a doubt. Yeah. 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 I think it was just this this like you know yes this fascination with the pineal gland as being something that can kind of like open us to the unseen, to other mm. dimensions, other ways of of understanding existence, that kind of thing, you know? At least that's how it, it sort of is viewed by by uh, the Illuminatus. So where is it? It's like in the spine? It's in your or brain. Or is it it's in... It's like in your it's brain. It's in the brain. Yeah. Okay, okay. 
And so people, yeah, thought it was like this key to knowledge or whatever. But this doctor, Eric Williams, uh, <laughs> is just, yeah, he's just scooping wrestlers' fucking brains out and feeding them to a fucking, like, He-Man toy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With, like, a big goldfish, oh. like a koi yeah. in a tank. Yeah. God, yeah, my words fail me when trying to describe the little fish toy that he's got in the tank. It is just something that needs to be seen to be believed because it is just like a little plastic fish man, you know, like there's it's nothing more than that. But it has just like such a special quality of in one of those traditional 1960s mad scientist lab sets to see him with like this little toy that he puts in a high tech tank that fills up with a bunch of bubbles. Yeah. Literally an action figure, folks. I mean, he throws an action figure in a tank with a fish and, yeah, some wrestler's brain juice. (laughs) And it's like, wait for the magic. Here it comes. I mean, a similar... A similar thing is sort of at play in Flash Gordon, you know, which has a lot of fun technology as well. Like both films have, you know, rooms full of junk, you know, mm-hmm. little radars and other sort of details. But Kyle was obsessed with the fact that in the beginning of the film, when they discover Earth and Ming's like, hmm, what's Earth? And it pans across his console and there's a button that says Earthquake. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. <laughs> Earthquake. You know, so awesome. Yeah. yeah, because then later on he talks about earthlings with such, you know, like knowledge, like you earthlings. But yes, at the very beginning, he's like, what the fuck is this? You know? Yeah, so you got an earthquake button. The prophecy is foretold. Yeah. I mean, the hot hail button's my favorite. But, yeah, you know. the hot hail is what gets most folks, you know. My, my favorite piece of technology in Flash Gordon is definitely when the like memory jammer uh, deleting tool where they oh yeah yeah, really good where we just like go back through like the mind of jewish america uh in the midst of this like colorful crazy lavish production we get nick rogue moment i mean honestly (laughs) yeah i wonder if that's the one thing he shot (laughs) (laughs) dude yeah he sketched out a fucking montage he's like and then markov remembers the holocaust yeah it's fucking crazy dude (laughs) it's insane it was not what i was expecting at all I mean, honestly, he. I wonder if that was shot by like a totally different team in general, because the visual quality is so different. It like looks like different film stock. It looks like it actually. It doesn't feel artificial the way that the the rest of the film is purposefully looking artificial and elaborate. You know, it feels too real. Those mm-hmm. memories. Yeah, and again, like talk about Eisenstein too. Like that whole that whole sequence has got a very like Eisensteinian quality to this yeah. like montage of attractions of not just one person's memory but the memory of the 20th century you know although some some comedian i heard like kind of ripping on it a little bit because he's like you know did you pay attention though it's like working backwards but then like we see he can get married and then his wife die you know so it's like it's supposed to be just working backwards shouldn't we have seen her kill herself first or whatever you know but like come on you're overthinking it here you know Oh, you know, I meant to go back to that. So she she kills herself. And for some reason in my head, it was that they like threw her in the pool as a joke and then she died. So his wife kills herself. It happened so fast. Yeah, it's it's I, it's it's vaguely implied that I think she she killed herself or at the very least, like drowned in an axe. Yeah, but but yeah. I I think the 
the tone of it seemed to me like it was it was you know it was a bad death you know certainly right. <laughs> yeah they should have injected some wrestler brain juice uh, into her and maybe it could have restored her to new glory yeah with a with a with a Flash Gordon action figure thrown into the mix, you know. <laughs> of course, my favorite technology is the what I was calling like the 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 jet ski of the sky, you know. Just again, another link with Batwoman and Cousteau. You know, he's not underwater; he's in the sky, but he's using what looks like yeah a futuristic jet ski yeah. that he's just got a sea dude in the sky. Sea yeah, dude in the sky, dude. <laughs> Holy shit! Yeah, I mean, again, that's the thing, like. So with both these movies, you like so elegantly put it, Ryan. It's just like there's so much to look at from one scene to the next, you know. And again, that production design is the star of the show in Flash Gordon. That as goofy and as predictable and as telegraphed as everything is going to be in this by the numbers cliche childhood adventure story, it's like. That's not ever what you're concerned about or focusing on. You are looking at the costumes. You're looking at the the crazy shit going on with the skies in the background. I mean, that's oh, that's yeah. oh my god! Yeah. It looks like a Pink Floyd cover album from the like late '60s. You know, oh, yeah, probably what they had playing on the back of their show. It looks like ice cream. It does look like ice cream. Yeah, yeah I was that's like, nice. I was like, mm, you know, I love ice cream, so <laughs> I wanted me, to. Let me get a taste I of to the sky. Eat that sky you know <laughs> i mean but that's the thing like i was just watching flash gordon and, and again seeing the last fucking 40 years and going like game of thrones sludge ass garbage and, <laughs> like wishes it was this you know scenes where yeah. like a bunch of people gather in a fucking hall and people like fight to the death on a circular object in the sky or whatever yeah. But it's fun and light here, unlike the sort of, yeah, the, the slog of, uh, you know, shit today. People bought fantasy books uh, in greater numbers when they had really colorful, garish covers on them, you know? Because that's what people want to be imagining when they're reading these things. And you got Game of Thrones that, yeah, it looks very gray, you know? It's like, take us seriously, it's so somber. And it's like, yeah, imagine if it had skies like that. It's very funny, though, because like thinking about all the costumes at Flash Gordon, my favorite, because you just you see all these costumes and you think, like, wow, that looks like it costs a lot of money. That one looks like it costs a lot of money. Like this is these are so detailed. There is so much like craftsmanship here. And then you have the lizard men whose <laughs> costume looks as good as the Pisces fish monster in Batwoman. I oh, was obsessed yeah. with those lizard yeah. men. Everyone else, their costume looks like it costs like over a thousand dollars. And then you've got these lizard men that just have the silliest latex on. It looked like a Halloween costume you could get at Spirit Halloween. It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. With eyeballs in their mouths. I love those. They guys. spent too much money bedazzling all those like dresses, you know. They couldn't <laughs> right. they couldn't afford anything else for the lizard men. And they tried their best to kind of have the lizard men hovering in the corners of frames and never really getting like an extreme close up. But it was just impossible. This film was restored uh, so beautifully that you just you see the lizard men. <laughs> yeah, you see the eyes behind the mask for sure. <laughs> right. I don't want to get too off topic, but, you know, you mentioned Kurt Russell as a possible you know, Flash Gordon, I was thinking while watching it and, and no disrespect, I think it, you know, it's done in a very energetic way, 
But I did have the thought, like, first of all, this reminds me of Big Trouble in Little China. Second of all, I wish John Carpenter directed this because then, like, everything would be, like, CinemaScope hallways, you know, which would be cool. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I mean, (laughs) look, you know, this came out in 1980, and I got to believe, knowing Carpenter's pedigree, that he was a big fan of the Flash Gordon serial and comic books, and and he saw this movie in eighty, and probably was like, "Yeah, that's that's pretty fucking sick." Well, what if I did that in Chinatown? You know, like because it's basically the exact same structure, marriage. You know, yeah. Lo Pan is Ming the Merciless, one hundred percent. You know, but in this case, you get an actual Chinese man to play the 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 surrogate Asian guy, not a Swedish guy. Totally. For sure. But yeah, it's it's one hundred percent that. And once you see it, like you can't unsee it. You're you're absolutely right. And you know, thinking about those cheap lizard men costumes, it does also remind me of the fact that despite the budget disparity between both of these movies, they both feature miniatures. And it's like no matter how much money you're gonna like spend on a movie, yeah. sometimes the best move is to just do some miniatures. And the miniatures in Flash Gordon look really nice. Oh yeah. You know, honestly, again, you're talking about, like, Game of Thrones and, like, oh, it wishes it that. You know, again, as, like, a child growing up, like, I was not a big Star Wars kid. Like, I saw Star Wars like any other kid and was like, ah, cool, you know, I was a kid or whatever. But, like, Flash Gordon was the tape that I was putting on way more than Star Wars. And, again, like, look at the miniatures. Like, same kind of approach to the level of, you know, special effects at the time, but, like... The, the miniatures, the spaceship designs in Flash Gordon are so, like, vibrant and colorful and garish. And again, look at Star Wars. Everything's just, like, gray and white. It's like a black and white movie, right? For the most part. But, like, this, like, this has something for the senses in every in every way the music i mean i'll take fucking queen over john williams oh, any oh, day baby, for, for baby. space opera right yeah and like I'll take the jazz band from batwoman over fucking oh, john williams yeah. dude yeah. they rocked 100 they were great and again another funny like dino like bullshit or whatever uh uh like uh brian may was talking about when you know he came up with the theme and he played it for Dino. And Dino, he said, just sat there with like a big frown on his face while, while Brian May's playing that amazing fucking theme. And he said, Dino just said like, yeah, this is a, a good song, but not for this movie. And it's like, dude, how fucking off could you be in every way? You know, like that theme of this movie is Probably something that, like you even, Ryan, I think said, like, you knew the theme song, but you yeah. hadn't seen the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. like It's on their greatest hits. Yeah. Dino got everything wrong about, like, the making of this fucking movie. And that's, that's why it's good. Because apparently, like, everybody went the opposite direction of whatever he wanted people to do. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about... You know, not to not to get ahead to my future segment here, but uh, my favorite comic movie of all time, as you guys know, is uh, a Dino De Laurentiis produced film, Danger Diabolic. Oh yeah, uh, which has a similar level of just ridiculousness, garishness. You know, just Bava going insane, uh, people rolling around in a bed, you know, naked on a bed full of cash, like <laughs> just the best movie ever, blowing up the tax office. You know. 
know. Um, so yeah, I feel like, I mean, it's amazing. I never saw Flash Gordon. Um, just somehow, I guess my dad, uh, has nothing to do with Flash Gordon, you know? Um, cause I wasn't even really aware of it until like I was an adult and I was like, God, oh, it's just one of those ones that, that escaped me. But yeah, it, it makes so much sense as, uh, yeah, sort of like one of those post Star Wars, uh, films that that certainly gets lost and got lost in the shuffle. Obviously, it seems like a lot of people appreciate it uh, today. You mm-hmm. know, a little more than they did twenty years ago. But yeah, it's a it's an interesting sort of like missing link uh, that I that I had an experience. You know, and again, I think because of as you were talking about like the legacy of where we've gone since Star Wars is that Flash Gordon became. A joke because it's campy because they are literally playing it that way for laughs. They have no pants on. Right. It's it's supposed to be a joke. You know, I mean, he's the quarterback of the New York Jets, for fuck's sake. And he's the savior of of the galaxies. You know, it's like it's supposed to be that. And so Flash Gordon, the movie became this kind of like, oh, yeah, Flash Gordon, that movie's corny. And it's like, yes. It's supposed to be Star Wars is fucking corny, but it's not played that way. You know, like, give me a fucking break. Ewok village. Come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, then thinking about all the love Batwoman has for things that are goofy, too. I like how not only is it adapting Frankenstein, it's also doing Bride of Frankenstein, because when Batwoman (laughs) is really, you know, starting to cause some trouble for Dr. Williams and even turns him into Two-Face at one point in the film, his plan is to to take some more athletic pineal glands and turn her into a fish, so turn Batwoman into a fish woman who could then be the mate for his fish man that he's planning to use to take over the seas of the world. Also kind of nice that the fish man's name is Pisces. It's yep. a little throwback to the fish that saved Pittsburgh. Yeah. Last week. We got the fish that saved Acapulco, or the fish that terrorized Acapulco. We're in our, our water era this summer, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's been a little hot. We're, yeah, we're constantly diving under <laughs> the depths, oh, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Man, there is an amazing fight in Batwoman, where the fish tries to capsize a boat that Batwoman and I think she's with Special Agent Mario Robles yeah. Oh, yeah. in that sequence when they're, yeah, they're on the boat and uh, Pisces or Pieces, as they call him, <laughs> tries to, 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 to knock the boat over and take them down to the depths and Robles takes a can of gasoline and pours it on the fish man and then ignites it and there are those shots underwater of the sea above them on fire that looked very cool oh yeah yeah because that was like it's one of those things where you know you see that normally in a movie it costs a lot of money so there are all these different like safety measures and it was all really controlled it was kind of interesting seeing the water on fire in a way that looked like it was just off the cuff and quickly shot you know, just like, okay, dunk the camera. Let's get a couple angles here of uh, water on fire. And it looked crazy. So colorful. Yeah. The the stunt person who's wearing, like, the, the fish man costume, his, like, there was a moment even where, like, he pops out, like, into the, the like, the flames. And you just see yeah. his, like, mask surrounded by all those flames. And I was thinking that's very fucking dangerous in a rubber suit to be, you know, 
playing around in a gasoline fire in the water. Yeah, yeah, my first instinct when that happened, I'm like, oh, they probably like put his head on a stick or something, right? And then poked it up. But in hindsight, I think your instinct is probably correct. That was probably just a stunt, man. Well, maybe it was flame retardant, you know, the yeah. suit. Or they probably just explained to him, like, hey, man, if it goes bad, just dive. Just get under the water. You're in the water, right. you know? Yeah. That's got one of those, like, late 60s uh, exploitation cinema styles I really love, where the fight scene was clearly shot first when they got all that stuff in Acapulco, and then they went back to the studio, and they thought, okay, how can we, like, meaningfully put all this together and connect it with the mad scientist? Because then it's cross-cut with just Dr. Eric Williams looking at the window with his binoculars, narrowing exactly what we're seeing <laughs> like beat for beat moment for moment like now they've done this like oh no they've got the gasoline can they're pouring it all over the fish man <laughs> and i i love that that's like just an extra way of padding out the runtime also making it all feel like clear and planned out and coherent when in reality they're like they showed up to the studio and said they're looking at the dailies and they're like this is what we got in acapulco like now we're going to shoot the studio stuff to kind of like tie all this together yeah. yeah, not to mention right after that, uh, Mario and Gloria are just having cocktails. Like, there's <laughs> yeah. a whole scene. There's like a two, three minute scene where they're just like, mm, yes, I'd love to have a cocktail. You know, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the real like MST3K stuff, you know, yeah. where it's like no urgency whatsoever. Like the, the drama of the story is like trying to build and then it's just breaking down, you know. I also, I love too that like, you know, this boat uh, presumably has just been sitting, you know, 500 meters offshore right there <laughs> yeah. in the same spot. They go there multiple times and, and not even with the FBI's resources do they ever just kind of go, why don't we just surround the boat? You know, like why don't we? Why do we? Just well, they don't in have enough evidence. Right there. Yeah. yeah, that's they keep saying we need more evidence. It's like just fucking. You're the FBI. It's the '60s. You can make up the evidence. Yeah, you Jesus, know? that didn't stop them ever. Yeah, come you know? on. Yeah, that was so perplexing. They like very clearly had plenty of evidence from that first mission getting on the boat to warrant. Uh, a warrant. I mean, I feel like there was absolutely probable cause for them to return to that boat with the full resources of the FBI. There's an interesting element of this film, you know, in that too, which I was trying to like pick up on a little bit is, you know, in the sort of macho masculine culture of Mexico, right? We have Batwoman and it's, you know, very funny to me how often she's like, Oh, yeah, Mario, just sit here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the reverse of what happens in a classic Hollywood movie where the woman gets like shoved in the closet. Like, no, you're not allowed to participate in violence. Uh, and several times Mario's like, oh, I'm FBI. I'll go with you. And she's like, no, no, no sit down. Yeah. And he just yeah. waits for her like a dog, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So like there is this sort of like subversive uh, aspect, I think, to this film in that Gloria, a.k.a. Batwoman, is just like... Yeah, she's got the goods, man, right? Like I said, she's got these guys fawning all over her. She's assured. She's telling them what to do. She's investigating, you know? Mm -hmm. She's also a champion wrestler. Uh, and, you so. know, just expanding on that, you know, if you if you do look at the, at the whole movie, uh, something that I kept expecting that didn't happen 
was like a sort of like romantic subplot. And, you know, cocktails aside, there's none of that. You know, she is not chasing this hot FBI guy at all. There's no will they, won't they at play. I mean, she's a single woman. She doesn't have a man in her life and it doesn't seem like she's in a hurry to get one. And I, and I thought that was like very fucking cool. Like she's just out there being sexy, being badass. And at no point is she like, well, you know what I really need is, is a man. No, she doesn't have any, Need for that what she really needs is to get onto that boat and prove there's a fish man, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's the drive. <laughs> Which, again, seemed like it would have been easier than uh, than this movie made it out to be, you know? Oh, yeah. time henchmen in this movie. These guys are just, like, the ultimate <laughs> clueless, like, blankly acted, like, sweating in open shirts and, like... You yeah. know, hats like these guys just like poking each other's eyeballs out. That's like their primary mode of attack. Yeah, they're very out of shape too. You know, <laughs> yeah. and again, that's yeah. another like unintentional joke that I appreciated when they were uh, talking about the plan of like, well, he's going after the best athletes, and they cut to the wrestling gym, and it's like these guys with like beer guts like rolling <laughs> around on that. It's like these are the yeah. finest athletes that Mexico has to offer. Some right guy here. named Swedish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Unreal. Meanwhile, you know, Flash, I mean, everybody wants a piece of Flash. I mean, he's like the hottest sought after commodity in well, Dale the galaxy. as well, but yeah. I mean, yeah. Dale, Dale is, but she is like, she. Hillary just kept saying like, why is she into him? Like they just met on the plane and he seems like an idiot or whatever. Yeah, she wants to like spend the rest of her life with that guy. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. I mean, you know, heat of the moment, you got a lot, when a lot's going on like that. Yeah, it's you know, like speed. You're all in it together. Yeah. You know what, honestly, this time around, and and only because I had now, you know, it's like a, a new film that I'd seen in the last couple of years, but you know the movie that I kept going back to while I was watching it this time was The Taking of Beverly Hills. Because, you know, go back to that, right? You got Boomer, the, the quarterback of the football team, who's yeah. just a big himbo. Quarterback double feature. Yeah, thrust yeah. into this dramatic situation. And again, if you go back to Taking Beverly Hills, we talked about how, like, he was presented as a sexual object. You know, Ken Wall, right? The bubble bath. Like, he's half naked at several points. And Flash, I mean, like... The women are like oogling him constantly throughout the film, the Playboy centerfold, you know? Like, do you remember that one scene where he had like the little leather, like hot pants on and he's like changing in the corner all shy while Aura's like, ooh, I want a piece of that. Like, where am I? Back from the dead. I've saved you. My God! How? By magic, of course, with a kiss. Because I like you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't bring you back from the dead just to become friends. No, I got right. something else in mind. <laughs> yeah, I was not expecting Flash Gordon to be as horny as it was. That was a, an extremely pleasant surprise. Yeah, it, it gives it a fun quality when you have all the villains also being really horny, you know, yeah. and wanting wanting a piece just like everybody else. Yeah, and again, I think, you know, <laughs> hey, credit where credit's due, but like this is uh, Dino De Laurentiis, a very horny Italian yeah. man behind the reins to a certain extent. I mean, this man made Barbarella. Absolutely, dude. Right? And, and as you described, Danger Diabolique. Like, I mean, this guy's like, nah, these these costumes are going to be skimpy as hell. Like, everyone's going to be super fucking horny in space. 
again, go back to Star Wars, and that's like one of the most like staid, prude fucking things you'll ever see. You know, yeah. like yeah. I mean, thinking about those Batwoman cocktails, there's also those slave cocktails that everybody's drinking. In Flash Gordon, that is like design. It's like tastes so good, just tastes yeah, so green good, stuff, and it's dude. like yeah, green you, stuff. yeah. <laughs> which seems like both to be an aphrodisiac and some kind of numbing agent, where you don't like feel too bad about all the shit that you have to like be subjugated to. Very weird cocktail. Like I couldn't quite tell what the the overall effect of it was, but it seemed to be very potent. Yeah, it kind of just seemed like it was heroin. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I can't believe too that we see uh, we see Flash go to the gas chamber in this in this picture, and that's a yeah. an insane yeah. set piece too. Uh, the bubble, the way it looks, and like the thick fucking gas. I mean, yeah, damn, the like yellow dude. smoke coming yeah. out, like it's awesome. And yeah, the like Queen guitars playing. Like. I mean, I guess like that's you know, look, I'm not a comic book expert, but like Flash gets like dynamic angles color movement i mean it's again the simple pleasure stuff but it's there like the way they shoot fucking von Sydow, like from below like these really insane sort of low angle comic panels like i appreciate that they're like going out on a limb and yeah like this is flash gordon it should be this ostentatious kind of thing you know absolutely and again i think like as far as like adaptations go and like for me with the prompt, part of the reason why like I was so drawn to picking this is because it is such clearly uh, an attempt at recreating the spirit and the style and the flow of both the comic strips and the serials. I mean, that whole opening credit sequence where we're right. seeing With all the panels, the panels. Yeah. And again, you're seeing the color of the panels. You're seeing the art. You're seeing the style of that. And the movie's laying it all out. Like, this is what we're going to be lovingly attempting to recreate. And again, like a, a throwback to the serials, like the flow, the structure of this movie is just like a series of like cliffhanger moments, you know, will Flash survive the gas chamber? Like, will he get out of this? When he's like in the swamp, you know, like, and you see him <laughs> enveloped by that strange, like spider yeah. creature. It's like, could this be the end of Flash Gordon? It's like, no, it's not. Like he's instantly saved by <laughs> someone. Yeah. And those serials are like 19 minutes long. So it's like, yeah, every 19 minutes, it's like, there's a peril. And then they get out. You know, how are they going to get out of this one? And Absolutely. They do, you know. But I think that's that's it. Like, it is true to the spirit of that. And on the flip side, I love, Ryan, that you brought, like, a total renegade adaptation that if you did today, you would end up in American courts. Probably, <laughs> yeah. probably go to prison for doing Definitely. what they did. But they were like, yeah, let's just, like, riff on Batman, you know? Uh, They'd probably be sent to the gas chambers if they did, <laughs> they did that today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But in, in that sense, right, we have one, like, totally classic paying homage to the 1930s, the original era, and then we have the wild 60s renegade Batwoman, you know? Like, it's perfect. And again, like I said, that's why I really appreciated this this double feature. It showed me, uh, it showed me a lot. Yeah, I mean, you could, even with Batwoman, it also, there's like plenty of spots where it would be the easiest thing in the world to put a commercial break in. You know, it's the plotting and the beats are pretty similar to Flash oh, Gordon. Too. Just another situation where, oh, is Batwoman going to get out of this? 
commercial break. It's just, yeah, every 10 <laughs> minutes, Dr. Eric Williams is like, I have a new f- experiment. I have a new phase. And then it just keeps escalating every Okay, now we got to go get her. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, now, yeah. Now I want her. My, We're going to kidnap Mario. My favorite part of this movie is the climax when Dr. Eric Williams does put like an emitter on Batwoman's cape so that like she can be tracked. And there's, she like realizes it. She notices that she has this emitter on and kind of plays ball to see how this will go. And so there's this really funny scene where she's just like sleeping at night. And Robles is, I think, downstairs keeping watch, and he he's just on, falls asleep on the couch, on the couch. Yeah, with a revolver in his hand. Yeah, he's asleep on the couch with a gun, and then PCs, the fish monster, shows up because there's something within this emitter that is attracting the fish monster. So the fish monster can spot exactly where they are. A fight ensues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then later, Robles is like, God, like, I don't know what happened. I don't understand how that all came to pass. And Batwoman basically says, yeah, I, so I had this emitter on my back, and I thought that this was just so Dr. Eric Williams knew where we were. I didn't realize that this emitter would attract the fish monster to us. And that line of dialogue is so fascinating to me, because to me, that's her saying, yeah, I thought this... emitter let the enemy know where we were but in fact it let the enemy know where we were (laughs) yeah well there's a difference because i think in her mind if 10 of those havana hat guys burst in like that's not a problem for her we've seen her dispatch the whole (laughs) crew before and so she was sort of expecting that but what i didn't expect is that she just went to bed that's what i'm talking about yeah (laughs) because i get that too but it's like but you went to sleep you didn't like set a trap you put yourself in the most vulnerable position with the emitter not even just like in the room literally like on your body and you're just like all right, right good night you know well, it's a leap of faith, just like Flash in the rocket ship at the end, you know? People are telling him to bail, you know? But, like, no, they're going to do what they're going to do. They're the heroes of our of our comic stories, you know? And it's like, Absolutely. if you're aware of this emitter, it seems like the perfect opportunity to set a trap. You know, make a counterattack. That would trap just be the enemy as they come in. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> she prefers a direct approach, usually a karate chop. Yeah. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> yeah. Direct approach. Like Hans Zarkov. I love that. Just again, to go back to the very beginning of the movie, the, the instinct of being like, there's some crazy alien force with a weather machine destroying our planet. I'm going to take my 38. I'm going to get in my homemade rocket and counterattack by myself or with his like assistant Munson, you know, <laughs> like, or what? I mean, Jesus Christ, dude. Hell yeah. I will say, I think that. Uh, taking of Beverly Hills used the football quality to um, more significant ends almost than Flash Gordon because Flash Gordon has the scene with he's like carting around that big uh, egg I think they're all like holding these giant green eggs and he uses that as a football and then uses his football skills to really take down all of Ming's guards and that initial capturing scene but then, I, I don't know, I guess in my memory, his football skills don't really come into play much later beyond the fact that he's got stamina, good vibes, and a winning attitude. Yeah, teamwork. Teamwork. And yeah. again, the, the will to win. And I, it was a, 
It was again like a funny, a funny like comment from Hillary though. Like even though he doesn't maybe use all the actual like physical skills, he uses the terminology throughout the movie. And Hillary oh, yeah. was like, Hillary, because at one point he said to like one of the guys like second down, and Hillary's like, they have no idea what second down means. You know, <laughs> again, it's like the whole got to you got to then explain the sport to everybody so they get it. If you're like, it's full count, guys, like. Is that good or bad? Yeah. Or? You think Dino De Laurentiis knows the rules of American football? Like, no. Not interested, dude. No way. I love that the climax of Flash Gordon, when there's the trial by combat between Flash Gordon and James Bond, is replicating, well, I guess setting the seeds for because it, it came out first, but it is, it's literally one of those uh, Mario Party minigames where you're on the platform and someone else is controlling it and trying to knock you off. And then there's the spikes in the floor. That was a very engaging scene. That reminded yeah. me of yeah. playing Mario Party as a kid. Dude, that's I a got, great scene. It is a great scene. And I got one more funny nugget that I learned from the, the Flash documentary about that scene. So in that scene, I mean, we didn't really get to talk much about this character. But I, as a kid, again, I loved General Clytus, the guy oh, with yeah. like the, the, the metal like robot like face, you know, the, oh, that yeah. guy. Yeah. The fascist police guy. Yeah, the fascist police guy. Also very horny. Yes, also very fucking horny for Ming's daughter. Yeah, both generals yes. have something going on there. But apparently when they were filming that scene, which is Clytus's death, Flash throws him onto the spikes, you know, spoiler alert, folks. But, but when they were filming that scene, apparently the actor, Peter Wingard, who played General Clytus like stopped the production and tried to pitch to Mike Hodges that his character shouldn't die. He's like, well, <laughs> well I'm a, such a good villain, you know? And they, there was already talk about the trilogy. And so in that moment, while they were filming the scene, he tried to talk Mike Hodges out of his character's death. And apparently like Mike Hodges fucking blew up on him because he was like, hard being like no 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 guys this is a bad idea to kill general glitus here and they they were just like get on the fucking spikes or whatever but i just right. i love that 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 attempt you know to make sure you're in the sequel and at the last hey, hour it's every actor's dream you know that's how uh, walton goggins ended up on justified because he you know he told them uh, if you kill me uh, i'm out of here yeah you don't got to show you go. yeah there you go didn't work this time no, certainly not. No. I wonder if the fish man ever tried to convince Cardona to keep him around. I guess it wouldn't really matter. He just would be the next monster. If there was a sequel, yeah. you never see his face. I did I did have a, a, a thought while watching Batwoman that considering this film's, you know, heritage and its subject matter, and again, a lot of like the, the campy goofy like quality to it, that uh Guillermo del Toro, I, I have I have a feeling like, He's all about it. Like, watched this movie and was like, shape of water. Like, what if the fish man really was in love with Batwoman? You know, what if he got her? Because there's that kind of element that almost gets introduced of him, like you said, the Bride of Frankenstein, like wanting her and and becoming somewhat, you know, sentient if you if you well, would go there. I mean, it's all connected. Like, I, I saw Hodges say that when he talked to people about Flash Gordon... 
they said that their first sexual fantasies were intertwined with Flash Gordon when wow. they were like children. So <laughs> I imagine, yeah, not to say that Guillermo del Toro jerked off to Batwoman, but I am suggesting <laughs> that, you know? Yeah, I buy it. <laughs> if you trust IMDb, the trivia says Guillermo del Toro likes it. He likes this film. Yeah. So well, that's like one of the only pieces of trivia is that Guillermo watched it. It's an unexpectedly, uh, you know, licentious week we've had here, you know, with these two movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, scantily clad for the hot summer days. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I guess so you you like Danger Diabolique, Marsh. Yeah. You get, do you like any other ones? Gee, I actually, I don't think I... I don't think I prepared anything beyond that and didn't expect to spill the beans. But uh, uh, I think, like, alternatively, <laughs> uh, I mean, Ghost World was big for me, you know, when I saw it as a teenager um, and sort of, like, alternative comics, right? I later read a bunch of Daniel Close, which I really liked, his sort of, like, 90s noir shit. Like, I got really into that at one point and actually was reading comics, you know, and really the result of that film you know and its legacy so shout out to that classic yeah nice is there like a graphic novel that either of you would love to see adapted that hasn't been uh tony got me into saga a while back i i didn't finish reading it but that was very engaging and cinematic and something i think that could be could be done you know they'd probably fuck it up or whatever but you know yeah i've never read saga but i know people love saga um man i you know i i feel like i've had more situations where i've read a graphic novel and been like they fucked this up like they ruined this sure. like alan moore's league of extraordinary gentlemen those graphic novels go very hard yeah. and they the movie is just an unmitigated fucking disaster uh, Sean Connery is in the movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bond in that? It's so, so fucking bad. What about From Hell? Do you like From Hell? I haven't seen it since it came out. And Sherman and I joke about it all the time because we're such Hughes brothers on yeah. tourists. And I've been meaning to, to revisit? revisit it, but I haven't. You know, I know it has a very uh, mixed sort of legacy, I think. Mostly negative. Yeah. But. Yeah. I can't. I can barely remember it yeah. myself. But which Gauntlet movie would you like to see adapted as a graphic novel series? <laughs> uh, George Kuchar's Weather Diary. Yeah. Ooh. Man. Be, that, the drawings would be beautiful. Yeah, yes. You need an insane artist on those, dude. Well, yeah. I guess those are our comic books. You know. Yeah. Hey, thanks. Uh, I had a great time. Yeah, it was fun. Not normally my arena, yeah. but I enjoyed flipping through the pages this I week. I wanted to get us out of our comfort zone a little bit, you know? Optimism, comic books, Jesus Christ, where are we going next? <laughs> uh, well, next week, we're all going to be out of town. So you're going to get a nice little gauntlet mixtape, volume five. Big things on there. We've got the Gas Pump Girls song. We've got the mm. Dion brothers, a lot of stuff going on there. So uh, that's going to come out next week. But after that, it's Andy's topic. What's going down? Well, um, you know, as we've been discussing, uh, it's been hot lately. And uh, sometimes when it's hot, you know, you, you try to cool things down a little bit. And uh, last week, 
I think off mic we had a brief discussion about uh, a movie that I still haven't seen that that you both have, and I've been meaning to uh, a movie called Skin of a Rink. Um, and I was thinking that you know for me. Uh, a lot of like haunted house movies have a very like cool vibe, you know, something about old drafty houses, you know, oftentimes set in the fall, that sort of thing. And uh, I guess I just want to cool down a little bit in a very dark room with some some spooky drafty vibes. So let's uh, let's go to some haunted homes. Bring me a movie about a haunted house or home let's spotlight on that maybe i can cool down with some some scary spooky vibes in a drafty old house boo boo (laughs) as always you can follow us on twitter at gauntlet movies or send us an email at gauntlet movie podcast at gmail.com Thanks, everyone. De las aguas del mar hace más de 400 millones de años, emanó el principio de la raza humana. Al surgir a la vida, el primer vertebrado, el pez. Partiendo de esa base, haremos la regresión hacia los albores de la evolución. Y crearemos a imagen y semejanza de nuestros antecesores primarios. La humana criatura anfibia. Ha 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 